Tonight on Farage, as the Taliban take 11 provincial cities in Afghanistan, we ask, was it right for British and American troops to leave? We go to the English Channel, another busy day in the English Channel with a lot of migrant boats coming and, tragically, the death of one of those attempting to cross. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by the one and only Sir Geoffrey Boycott. In the wake of that terrible day, 9-11, as the Americans call it, when the Twin Towers came down and the Pentagon was attacked, in the wake of all of this, President George Bush declared a war on terror. And it was thought and felt that the masterminds who plotted these horrendous acts were in the caves in Afghanistan. And in went the Americans. In very shortly after that went the British. And we've been there for 20 years. There have been about 5,000 deaths of American and British troops. Between the two of us, we've spent well over $1 trillion. There are some that argue that during that 20 years, it made life for those living in Afghanistan very much more livable. But now we've gone. The Americans have gone, and we've gone. And it's almost as if nothing has changed at all, as the Taliban relentlessly now start to take territory. Let's have a look at a map of Afghanistan and you can see the red, dark red areas are those that were held by the Taliban a few weeks ago and you can see the steady advance of Taliban forces. They've now taken 11 provincial cities. In terms of geography, the Taliban now hold two-thirds of the territory of Afghanistan. That is how bad, that is how serious this situation now is. According to US intelligence sources, they believe that Kabul could fall in the space of the next three months and it would then be a completely Taliban-controlled country. So we have to ask ourselves, was it worth all that blood and treasure? And was it right for us to leave? Have we done the right thing by leaving? By leaving, we've allowed the Taliban to come back. But then We'd been there for 20 years. What were we supposed to do? Stay there for another five, another 10, another 20? What was the right decision? I have to say personally, it's horrible to see the Taliban advancing, but I think it was right to leave. I do even begin to question quite strongly whether it made sense to go in. Anybody with any sense of history would have known that not just the mighty Soviets who in the early 1980s completely failed in Afghanistan, but even the British Empire in the 19th century, at the height of its powers, completely failed to subdue Afghanistan. History tells you that anyone that invades Afghanistan never, ever succeeds. So I, I have to say I was pretty milky at the time when we went in. As the war went on, I began to question very strongly what it was about. Now, I hate saying that, in the sense that so many British boys went there, were killed or very seriously wounded. Uh, and I wouldn't want any of them to think uh, that in some way I didn't honour what they tried to do. They were given their orders, they were given their instructions, and of course, professionally, they did their job. But now Afghanistan is going back to where it was before. Arguably, it could be even worse. I think it was right to leave, but it's a very difficult question to answer. And I want to know what you think. Please let me know, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Well, let's talk to some people who were directly involved in that war, 
and see how they feel about it. And I'm very pleased to be joined by US Special Forces veteran Scott Neal, who served as a Master Sergeant and was one of the first to lead the direct action and counter-terrorism charge into Afghanistan. Scott, that would have been way back in 2000. Welcome to GB News. Well, thank you very much, and it's an honor and privilege to be on your show talking about what's been in our hearts over the last couple of weeks, and that's Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were there from the very beginning, and, and as I said in the introduction, this was all about the war on terror, wasn't it? It was all about right. the belief, it was all about the belief that the terrorist cells, the plotting and the planning was going on inside Afghanistan. I mean, did you believe that that was right? Did you believe going in was the right thing to do? A hundred percent. Now, take yourselves and your emotions back to 2001. 9-11 had just happened. A, yeah. a lot of us in America and I'm sure around the world felt vulnerable and shocked. How did this happen? And it was as little as a few days later that we had an idea that it was an al-Qaeda attack. And if you recall, even way back then, you know, we tried to get the Taliban to give over Osama bin Laden. And they had a clear choice to. And President Bush at the time said, either you're with us or against us. We inserted on 19 October 2001. It was as little as 100 Army Special Forces Green Berets. Uh, and then uh, some of our British SAS and Special Boat Squadron folks came in. And we had literally achieved our objective in 100 days. And that was to displace the Taliban out of power. But more importantly at the time, it was to take the base of operations in Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan, and we achieved that. So is the argument then, Scott, that you know this was a very successful short-term military operation? Should it, I mean, hindsight, of course, is a wonderful thing, but is that when it should have ended, in your opinion? Uh, we actually thought it did. I think by the time in April of 2002, you know, there was this idea of a small leave-behind force. We didn't understand, um, you know, the mission. But I think the world, especially America, got distracted by Iraq. And we turned our attention to that. And if you follow history to about another seven years, Afghanistan was quiet. And we had this noble idea of, you know, building some kind of infrastructure, some kind of government, maybe a, a small type of national army and it was in everybody's back thought. And really, it wasn't until 2010 that this famous word called the surge came about. And this idea with more soldiers and more, more troops that, you know, you could put Afghanistan back together again. And 10 years later, it wasn't true. No. And, and tell me, how do you feel? I mean, you were there, you served, uh, you understand what the losses were that, the, you know, that we took, that you took. Uh, how do you how feel, I feel is, is how I feel now. My son went to Afghanistan last year and spent a year serving. So as a soldier, I know a soldier's duty. As a father, I didn't understand the policy that we were trying to execute. Afghanistan, in my humble opinion, needs another couple hundred years in the oven. Um, it, it wasn't ready for what we try to present to Afghanistan. It actually needs to become what it, it's naturally going to become. And unfortunately, the Taliban uh, stuck to local solutions and local relationships while we wrestled ourselves in the national aspects in Kabul. So in the end, mm -hmm. it was right to leave, Scott, was it? It, it was. We, we needed to. Um, we thought 
very naively that we had provided all the solutions militarily for the Afghans to be a counter to um, uh, the Taliban. But the Taliban knew where to fight and they fought at the local level. They fought in the checkpoints. And that's where you see instantly it has changed to, to their favor. Maybe not in the capital, maybe not yet, but yeah. they won the hearts and minds. Not really the hearts. They took the hearts and minds of the local people who just want to be uh, and just want to exist. And it seems, Scott, that the local warlords who, who as you well know, have been very powerful figures in Afghanistan, yes. they haven't really tried to put up much resistance to, to the Taliban this time, have they? I think everybody's reeling, you know, it's the pendulum. The Taliban will sweep through, they'll settle into it, um, and now they'll expose their positions. They'll have to man the checkpoints. They'll have to try some governance. What you're going to see is the, uh, the tragedy of the Taliban justice. All of those that were our partners are in fear of their lives. What I personally would hate to see is all of the intellectuals of Afghanistan flee the business leaders, the bankers, the doctors, everything that was trying to make that a normal society yeah, yeah. will now try to lead that country and you'll be back 100 years. Yeah, and there's a big row going on here in the UK about the interpreters, the Afghan interpreters yeah. who helped British forces whilst we were right. there. And we've not exactly been generous about giving them sanctuary back in the United Kingdom. And of course, you know, with the Taliban taking all of this territory, the fear that there'll be reprisals against the interpreters, and perhaps even against their families too. Tell me, how has America dealt with your interpreters? Well, it was very slow in the legal process, the sense that the State Department and the visa application, now that nobody can even travel to get to any type of consulate or get to Kabul, you're basically in a refugee in a flight and smuggle status. So you see a lot of a lot of, you know, interpreters trying to figure out a way to get out of any kind of border. But that's even closed right now. And you have the Taliban that have now secured miles before the border. So it's going to turn unless we can turn this momentum around in 90 days. Uh, we're going to see a tremendous amount of payback and retribution yeah, that's going to happen. No, that, I mean, that's the great fear. And I mean, none of us yet know whether Kabul can hold or not. Um, there are, you know, experts on both sides making different predictions, but it seems to me that once Kabul is surrounded, uh, effectively, it'll be in some form of siege. If Kabul falls and the whole country comes under Taliban control, I would have thought there's no prospect of us going back, is there? I, I, I don't think so, unless it becomes a situation where we have a toehold maybe a, an old base that can be kind of resurfaced. The, the Afghans have the military capacity to resist the Taliban. They are a loose organization of yeah. men with small arms. We have trained the Afghan army. They have the Air Force. They have the heavy lift. They have everything that they need to, but do they have the will and desire to fight for it? And that's where we got to ask the Taliban people. It's up to them to fight who they want to be in charge of them. So in conclusion, Scott, we did a great military job in the beginning. We achieved the objectives. We stayed too long and it's ended pretty badly. I think so. I, I think we're seen and we're shocked because the citizens of both of our countries thought everything was secure and everything was handled. Yet there are a lot of reports that no, it, not too many people. Now they believe uh, it was the wrong approach 20 years into this. Yeah, absolutely. Scott Neal, thank you very much.
giving us your first-hand experience of Afghanistan you. and your analysis. And please, as I said earlier, were we right to leave Afghanistan? I think we were. Uh, but it was fascinating, wasn't it, hearing somebody who was there in 2001, there at the very beginning, saying that actually the military, the military objectives were achieved in the first few months. We just shouldn't have stayed on for that period of time. That's an opinion. I'm keen to hear yours. GBviews at gbnews.uk. So today it's GCSE Day and lots and lots of happy 16-year-olds, because, of course, rather like the A-levels, a couple of days back, the GCSE grades are much, much better than they were before. A lot more students getting A's and A-stars uh, than we saw a couple of years ago. But something interesting is happening, and we saw it with the A-level results, and we're now seeing it with the GCSE results. And it's this. The gap between the levels of attainment in the private school sector and the state school sector has got bigger and bigger. Interestingly, also, the gap between boys and girls is getting bigger. It seems that boys do quite well under the pressure of one exam, but don't do very well when boys are asked to be diligent over long periods of time. Girls appear to be much, much better at that form of learning and that form of testing. But the real divide, the big divide that really exists, is between the private schools and between the state schools. And some of the percentages are amazing. I mean, at the independent schools today, those getting grade 7 and above was 60%. For some secondary comprehensives, it was 28%. That is a very, very big gap. I have a bit of a theory uh, as to why this has happened and what it might mean for education going on from here. But before I, before I expound that, let me get to you, Steve Chalk. He's the founder of the Oasis Academy Trust, which represents 53 academy schools across England. Steve, thank you for joining us here on GB News. Thank you, Nigel. You see, it seems to me, Steve, that in too many cases, we've seen kids who've been let down in lockdown. There were too many... I mean, this, this is my view, and you, if I'm wrong, you tell me. But it seems to me that in the private sector... Very, very quickly, they adapted to online learning, to a normal school day, you know, being conducted from the kitchen room table or the kids' bedroom or whatever it was, and that they kind of had to do that because they're charging parents very, very high fees, and if they hadn't done that, I suspect people wouldn't have paid. But it does seem to me, and I'm saying this through family experience, it does seem to me that there were quite large sectors of state education that took months to get organised and that left the children in state schools disadvantaged in a very big way compared to the private schools. Steve, that's what I think of it. Please tell me how you see this. Well, Nigel, I, I, I agree with you. I think, however, there were two disparities, two gaps. There was the gap that you've talked about, the gap between uh, the independent sector and the state sector, which, as you say, is increasing. But then there was another gap within the state sector. And the gap was between those uh, uh, kids, those students who've done well, and those students who, as Ofqual, the regulator themselves said, those students who performed more poorly than others and they they pulled out three categories they said black students 
students on free school meals and students from areas of homes of high deprivation. So it plays in, Nigel, to exactly what you're saying. It's the kids that were well equipped, the kids that had the broadband, the space, the safety, the support, uh, the peace. And it's the kids that didn't enjoy any of those things. And of course, there are many middle class kids in the state system, whereas they didn't always have the support uh, that the um, independent sector can afford. Very often, they had support from their family and their friends. Their parents were able to work at home. They live in houses with good, strong broadband connection. But then there were those who were poor at the other end of the scale, and they really suffered. I guess, I mean, at the poor end of the scale, I guess some some youngsters... Mm -hmm may not have even had access to laptops. I mean, there was a campaign, wasn't there, by national newspapers to try and raise money to get laptops for kids who do come from poor backgrounds. But, Steve, you know, we've always had a private sector and a public sector, Mm. but it just seems to me that those that have got money would increasingly want to send their kids through private education as a result of this pandemic, and that's fine. In a free country, if, if... If the private sector expands as a result of this, which I believe it will, then that's fine. And I, you know, I think the sort of Jeremy Corbyn approach that you effectively would make it impossible for private schools to survive is crazy. You know, if you've got a part of a system that is working, let them get on with it. But what do we do? What do we do to give bright young kids in the state sector every opportunity to achieve their best? I mean, I, and it may be an old fashioned idea, But it seemed to me that grammar schools did give that opportunity. Now, you know, you're running you're running academies. I presume you have streaming within those academies. Yeah. Yes, we do. Um, What I would say about this, Nigel, is this. The the schools that really struggle within the state sector are schools that were out there on their own. So um, Oasis, we have uh, 53 schools. We have 30,000 plus students and we work as a collective we work as a whole so we were able to respond quickly we were able to get lessons online for instance we were able to get devices out to all of our students around the country in fact we purchased 33,000 iPads from Apple they told us it was the biggest ever education <laughs> but but because we got scale we were able to organize we don't have more money but using our budgets creatively and thinking about investing now in something that gave everybody equity in their home and creating, uh, supplying dongles for our our students who didn't have broadband or adequate broadband, we were able to do that. So we were able to compensate, if you like, for the fact that we don't have the luxury of the cash that the independent sector has, but we had the size to create savings of scale. If you were, a local authority school on your own, a small uh, primary school or secondary school on your own. You've got brilliant staff, totally committed, but they don't, they just don't have the infrastructure or the capacity to respond quickly. And I think that's happened. So do I. I agree with that entirely. Steve, thank you very much indeed.
for coming on and joining this debate. Thank you. Now, today, we've, we've had days of gales. The weather was a bit better today in the English Channel, although still not very good. But it was a busy day for migrant crossings. Uh, it was busy in the port of Dover today, with a lot of boats being picked up mid-channel by border force. And you can see some footage from this morning. That was Dover docks this morning, bringing migrants in. But astonishingly, uh, there were quite a few migrant boats, half a dozen, I believe, that made it all the way across the channel uh, and were actually landing on Kent beaches. And this footage, this is Ramsgate Pleasure Beach. Um, and had it been a nicer day, it would have been absolutely packed. And you can see the dinghy landing there. There must be 30, 40, I guess, all men. It normally is. Uh, and, you know, you're there with your windbreak up, and it's uh, a little bit of a shock uh, to see these people arriving. I think there were about six boats that made it all the way and landed on Kent beaches. And, and I'm guessing uh, Border Force didn't expect that many to come. However, one boat uh, that left France got into some difficulty not far from the French shore, uh, started sinking. The emergency services went to it. One man suffered a cardiac arrest, was helicoptered off to a French hospital and died there. So we do have a migrant death today. Uh, and as I've said before, and I'll say it again, you know, my fear is at some point over the next couple of months, there is going to be, you know, a major collision that takes place in the shipping lanes and we'll see something on a very much bigger scale than this. So, once again, whenever it's calm, this problem comes back. In a moment, we will talk under What the Farage about the Chinese media inventing a Swiss scientist. It really is quite a story. Tonight we're asking, was it right after 20 years for us to leave Afghanistan as, as the Taliban now take 11 provincial cities and own two-thirds of the geographical landmass of Afghanistan? And your responses are coming in. Janice on email says, absolutely the right thing to do to pull out. Sad, but we are not the world's policemen. Bran on email says, Nigel, surely our presence there must have been necessary. It appears to have kept the Taliban somewhat under control. Now they are free to begin all over again. And isn't that the point? You know, we went in to do a job and we spoke to US Special Forces veteran Scott Neal, who said, actually, within six months, we'd done the job we were sent there to do. And then something called mission creep uh, seems to appear. And we finished up spending 20 years there. Emma on email says, I don't think we should have left Afghanistan. The situation is not good. It can only spell trouble for us and other countries in the near future. Well... If Afghanistan is the place where global terrorist attacks are planned from and organised from, that may well be true. But I somehow feel we couldn't stay there forever. Tony on Twitter says, we shouldn't have left Afghanistan, but the mission should have had a plan that could be realistically achieved. Well, maybe it was in the first few months. David on email says, if the USA aren't going back, it's unlikely the UK will go back on our own. So we might as well stop agonising about it. Well, I think we would agonise about it because I think we do feel... Uh, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine, you know, living in Kabul or one of those cities right now and you see the threat of the Taliban coming? Uh, yeah, we will agonise about it because it would be pretty frightening. I certainly wouldn't want to be there. I'm sure you wouldn't either. Now, here on this show... We covered the Gurkha protest 
outside Downing Street before any other broadcaster. Uh, we, covered the, we covered them, we debated this issue of Gurkha pensions, uh, and, and our belief uh, that actually it's a tiny sum of money that would see Gurkhas compensated in terms of pensions the same way as other British Army soldiers. And we said there was going to be a hunger strike, and that hunger strike has now started. So we're actually now, I think, in day six of the hunger strike, and I'm hoping we can cross over live to Downing Street. Now, Tom Harwood, uh, you're there in Downing Street, and I think, yes, I can see you. Is it day six of the hunger strike now? What is actually going on down there? Absolutely, Nigel. The hunger strike started on Saturday morning, so we are now well into day six of this hunger strike, and two Gurkhas and one widow of a Gurkha are, uh, are striking with, without eating until they get a meeting with this government. It's not an outlandish demand, it's simply asking to sit down with the government and thrash out this issue. Of course, the issue is that pension issue. When, uh, when pensions were granted to Gurkhas who served before 1997, pensions were set at a level perhaps appropriate for living in Nepal, where the cost of living is so much lower. But of course, uh, after Gurkhas were allowed to move back to this country, those pre-1997 Gurkhas, after that Joanna Lumley campaign at the end of last decade, well, those pensions simply are not sufficient for living in the United Kingdom. But this pension, uh, but this, uh, this, this protest, as, as you rightly say, is into day six now, and there have been some fraught moments. There was an altercation uh, a couple of days ago with the Metropolitan Police, who were demanding that an awning covering the three hunger strikers would be taken down. Now, Cressida Dick, who's in charge of the Metropolitan Police, defended her action in a radio interview earlier today. There has been a protest in Whitehall for some considerable time now uh, in an area where people can have uh, a kind of static protest. It's, it's, it's allowed, albeit there's a lot of competition to be in there. Um, and they have been there for a number of days. The bylaws, however, and I think you can understand why, do not allow for uh, you know a, what might become a permanent encampment. But they allow for Part, the yacht in partly, partly because people... Uh, other people want to come in there. We don't want... Uh, well, the law is suggesting that people shouldn't be able to just stay there forever op opposite Downing Street, which mm -hmm. some people would. And therefore, after uh, considerable uh, you know, warning and conversation, uh, the police did, my officers did go in and, and say, I'm afraid these are, these, this, this awning is going to have to come down. Now, that awning is down. Of course, the Gurkhas are a very law-abiding people. Of course, they fought with the British Army. They uh, respect that sort of thing. But I think the suggestion that this encampment wants to be permanent is wrong. This encampment does not want to be permanent. These Gurkhas do not want to be on hunger strike. What they want is a meeting with the government. But as I say, that meeting has not been forthcoming. There's been one paltry statement from the Ministry of Defence that seemed to not address the issue at hand. And it does seem to be a real issue that has attracted a great deal of support, both from Gurkhas here uh, in Whitehall, but also other British Army veterans who've been along to support their former comrades. Much indeed, and I have to say, the Gurkhas, our relationship with them going back a couple of hundred years, and they've been absolutely wonderful friends and allies of this country. We shouldn't forget that. And I think it's wrong of the government to simply ignore them. They ought to have a meeting with them. Tom, thank you uh, for doing that for us.
I also have to say, you know, there's Cressida Dick, you know, being, being quite literal with the law and saying that temporary uh, shelter wasn't allowed. Well, I do hope we have the same robust policing on the streets of London beginning on the 23rd of August when Extinction Rebellion want to go to eight different sites and effectively close down London. And I hope, Cressida Dick, that you clear them off the streets and keep the Queen's Highway open. Wouldn't that be nice? We'll wait and see. Now, my What the Farage moment, and this is extraordinary. So, Chinese state media have been accused of spreading fake news and attempting to discredit the World Health Organization after quoting a Swiss biologist who doesn't appear to even exist. Media outlets including the People's Daily, the China Daily and the state-run CGTN television network have widely quoted Wilson Edwards, who was said to have claimed that the US government had pressured the World Health Organization to investigate the theory that COVID-19 was first leaked by a laboratory in Wuhan. But references to Edwards were removed from the media websites today after the Swiss embassy said there was no Swiss citizen by that name and it could find no academic articles by him. They said, if you exist, we would like to meet you. But it is more likely that this is a fake news and we call on the Chinese press and netizens to take down the posts. Well, there you are. You see, communist China, it's a constant spin machine. And it's fascinating to think that all of those media titles are effectively run by the Chinese Communist Party. And if you say anything unpleasant about China and what it's doing in Hong Kong or to the Uyghur minorities, and I've been in this camp myself, they turn their guns on you in the most extraordinary way. Now, it's the first day of the Lord's Test, and coming up, I'll be talking pints with the one and only Sir Geoffrey Boycott. Well, joining me tonight for Talking Pints is Sir Geoffrey Boycott, OBE. He's come straight from Lords. We'll be playing the second test against India. I'm not sure it's been a particularly good day, but Geoffrey, cheers. Welcome to good GB help. News. Great to see you. Thank you. Mm. Now, Sir Geoffrey Boycott, your fans have been calling you Sir Geoffrey for about 20 years before that, yeah. I think. Yeah, I and I have to say, with you coming on today, as you know, I'm a big fan of test cricket, loving. Yeah. Yeah. I've been going to Lords since the early 70s watching Test cricket, so I didn't need to do any research because I knew you had 151 first-class hundreds, yeah. and I knew you played 108 Test matches, yeah. and you'd scored over 30,000 runs. It was a very long career you had, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you were playing well into your 40s, weren't you? Well, I was playing against those West Indians when I was 40 and 41. It was madness, really. Had <laughs> no helmet in those. No, the, the greatest fast bowling attack the world's ever seen. And one thing about fast bowling is the fear, fear of getting hurt. Yeah. I mean, for many, many years, there was no helmets at all. So if you got hit on the head, yeah. it could be cleaners. And even with helmets and arm pads and chest pads, they can really hurt you. So, I mean, a lot of test cricket has been won by one fast bowler. Or even two. Larwood won the Ashes in Australia, the body line. I mean, Truman Statham, you've had uh, Linwall and Miller, you've had uh, Lillian Thompson. Yep. And they've always won one or two. They're, they're eight aces in the pack, but now they had four. Yeah. And they had a few queuing up to get in the team who couldn't. Wayne Daniels at Middlesex played 11 times. Sylvester Clark, oh, he was a bowler. 
Oh, the odd ball he threw, and very fast, and very well. <laughs> he threw at Surrey. Oh, he played ten times. So, I mean... But I watched tough. you. I watched you playing, and, you know, it was against fast bowling. Yeah. Right foot, back and across. Uh, the, yeah. the Jeffrey Boycott elbow mm. up here somewhere. I don't know how you managed to get it up to that position, but you did. So, but you never showed fear when you were out there, but were you scared at times? No, no. Apprehensive, nervous. Yeah. I think it's very important to have nerves. You can't show fear. You have to have some confidence that you can succeed, yeah. although you know it's going to be tough, and you know sometimes they're going to win. Richard Benno said something very important to me. Jeffrey, if the opening bowler with the new ball doesn't get you out sometimes, he's not doing his job very well. <laughs> and if you don't get some runs and some hundreds sometimes, you're not doing your job. So you're not going to win every time, not unless you're Don Bradman, who's a genius. Most of us, we have good and bad times, and... Hopefully we have more good times than bad, then we're pretty good. Well, it's noticeable with your test career that every time you scored 100, England never lost a game. They never lost a game. You know, and some criticised you for slow play, but hey, you know, I mean, sportsmen always get criticised for stuff. But it's mm -hmm. interesting, isn't it? You got criticised for slow play, but I notice now test matches often don't last five days, do they? No. no they're they over don't. in four or three and a half or... They should be playing four-day test match cricket. Yeah. Playing seven-hour days. And they should be making them bowl 16 overs an hour. They're cheating the they're public. Yeah. It's £165 the ticket at Lord's today. £165. Two grown-ups, 330 Yeah. If you had, let's say, a kids can come in from a tenner, but that's £350 for a day, not the whole test. Yeah. That's a lot of brass. And we're bowling 13 and a half overs an hour. It's, it's monstrous. All you have to do, don't alter the... Size and shape of the bat, the length of the pitch, the stumps or anything, alter anything, just make them, penalise them if they don't bowl, say, 16 overs an hour, yeah. and just move the game on a bit into four days. That's all. So you played well into your 40s. Yes. You know, you packed up county cricket in your mid 40s. 46. 46. And you were, I remember, one of those cricketers, I think Alan Knott was another, you took fitness yes. and training. Very, very seriously. Yeah, yeah. You ran, uh, you got yourself in a good condition, you had your injuries, broken bones, and all the stuff that cricketers broken have. Broken bones mainly, because yeah. you get hit on the fingers or on the arm. I broke my arm in Australia and so thing. You're yeah. going to get breaks as a top-order batsman against fast bowlers. But you were, you were taking fitness seriously Yes. at a time when not many cricketers did. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I sort of see visions of Colin Cowdery walking out of a little <laughs> stomach out here somewhere. Yep. I mean, still a very good batsman. A good bat. And all the rest of it. Uh, but for somebody who's... You've taken your health very seriously all your life, you've not been that lucky in later years, no, have you? No, no, you, you had cancer of the tongue. Yeah. Yeah, I just had a, two years ago, quadruple heart bypass. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a heart attack, but I just found it on examination. Yeah, I've had all kinds of things. I think you've got... I think if, if you play test cricket long enough, you're in love with it. You've got to have a strong mind. That's what test cricket... You have to play. You have to be a great character, good technique. You have to have a strong mind. Yeah. If you play the 2020 and the 100 ball, it's just crash bang wallop. It's really baseball. Shrugging's answer to baseball. Stand, can you hit a home run? Four or six, every ball. That's what it is. Test cricket isn't like that. It ebbs and flows and changes from steady to quickness. And one side gets the upper hand, and you've got to be able to have a quick mind to think. You may be under pressure for half an hour with fast bowling. Can you play through it? You haven't got to smack them around the park. It has all these aspects. I think it's... Test cricket is a nice examination. 
when you go to 2020, the 100 balls, it's just pure fun. Yeah. And uh, treat it like But that. it's a good day out for the crowd. It's a wonderful day. Yeah, and, and you know, 2020, it's over in three and a half hours or and whatever the, the it is. And the tickets are cheap. Yeah, no, 30 I, quid. 165 quid for a test. There ain't yeah. too many going to no, that. No. Only those that can afford it. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've been to a few 2020s, and I was a bit sceptical to begin no, with. I Actually, wasn't. do you know what? It's fun. No, I thought it would be great fun. Yeah. It would fill a void. Yeah. Kids can go. They can, families can afford it. And you look at the modern-day kid for the last number of years. They're used to having everything quick, instant, mm. excited. Mm. I mean, how many of them sit down quietly like we did and read a book when there was no television? Now there's television, there's games on television, there's got computers with games, they've got mobile phones to get everything on. Oh, yeah, All yeah, kinds yeah, yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah. And they, it's just right for what the modern youngster wants. So does Test Cricket survive? I mean, I hope and pray that it I does. I think it'll struggle. Do you? I think this 2020 100 ball and the administrators put in all the promotion into it, if they put the same amount of money and promotion and effort into test cricket, yep. changing it to four days, moving the overrate on, selling it to the public, explaining what, how different it is, we could have and should have both games because they both have yeah. a part to play. Yeah. We shouldn't lose yeah. one. Yeah. But there are so many countries now, they're struggling. They're losing money on test cricket. New Zealand only have five million people. South Africa to struggle, and West Indies, no chance. Hmm. Pakistan don't watch Test well, Cricket. That, I've been to Barbados to watch Test Cricket, and there's more English in the crowd yeah. than there are Barbadians in And the I crowd. did three tours there. And when I played, the grounds were full of West yeah. Indians. Yeah. Now they're not. Yeah. They don't go. They look at the team and the standard of cricket and the quality, and they go, when I've watched Sobers and the three Ws, <laughs> you know, uh, and Ryan Canai and uh, Wes All Bowling and... Malcolm Marshall and Michael Holley, and they go, no, I'll give it a miss now. It's not in the same league. No. And we're not selling Test Match cricket. We're just leaving it as it was, and we're kind of seducing ourselves that because Lords is full, because our Test Grounds are full, that that's going on the same way in other parts of the world. It but, isn't. But it isn't. Ours is healthy, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Australia is yeah. when the Ashes are played or India yeah. play. But other countries are not doing that. No, and in I've, the end, I've, I've if we lose the other countries in Test cricket, then we're left with England, Australia and India playing it itself all the time. And that's going to get tedious. Yeah. Now you, you need the different countries to make it interesting and exciting. Now, you were there today at Lord's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I know Jimmy Anderson, he's 39 now, which for a fast bowler is amazing. Took a couple of wickets. What do you make of this England team? They've got two world-class batsmen. Joe Root, and when he plays, Ben Stokes. They're two world-class players. They, they play in any era. They're very, very good. And the rest? Uh, well, some of them, my mum would play as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, they haven't got it, some of them. And if you haven't got it, by the age you play, it's difficult to find it. So we've got... We're struggling for batsmen, which we clearly struggling. are. Struggling. Quality. It's the quality we're struggling for. But then I look at the bowlers. I say, Jimmy Anderson... But Broad and him are getting old. 39 and 35, mm. so... And, and nobody obviously coming through. Oh. There's some bright young things. But English Test cricket's not looking fantastic, Geoffrey, is it? Well, if I had some money, I won't be putting it on England. <laughs> You've made loads of money over there. I won't be putting, putting it on England. I'd like <laughs> them to win. Having said that, you see, they're not a great batting side, but they have a far better bowling attack. You know, start... Yeah. Cummings. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Is no, I top agree. class if they stay fit. So why, why Jeffrey? Because I've listened to Test Match Special. I've loved Test Match Special. I've been Agnew's 
you know, guest of the day on the Saturday on it and all the rest of it. And so I've listened to Test Match Special for over 50 years. Yeah. I've always loved the programme, always mm. enjoyed the programme. Right. Been a mixture of some quite light-hearted fun, but some serious, yes, you know. And at the end of the over, you get the summariser. You get the person that knows the pitch, that knows the game. And, well, you used to. I don't and, do now. And, I don't listen. And, you know, even your detractors, because, you know, you're an opinionated guy. You've sure. never, you know, you're a Yorkshireman. You've never exactly held back sure. with your views. But even your detractors would say, yeah, that boycott, actually, at the end of the over, when he gives analysis... I know the game. He knows the game. I know the game. Why are you not on the BBC, Geoffrey? Uh, <laughs> that is a serious question. Um, I mean, who knows more I, about batting in test it, matches um, than you? I think he was getting to the point where the political correctness was more important than whether you were expert at cricket, put it that way. Is that something up for you? What it does is remarkably reserved for you, though. Yes. <laughs> well, when you're not working with something, you don't want to be trashing it, do you? It no, I get peevish. that. No, no, I just think, it, yes, it was getting that way. Yeah. And it's sad. Yeah. I mean, everybody should be equal. Men and women, race, colour. It should be about ability. But we've got a situation, haven't we, now, that, uh, you know, companies, institutions are all frightened to, about being called racist. If they don't have women, say so you're anti-women. Yep. If it's all men working and... Uh, there's, a, there's a shade of white fear. We don't talk about it anymore. We may talk in private, but you say it publicly, the media will crucify you and so forth, because it's a good story. But actually, it's getting like that, and it, it's sad, really. It should be equality for everybody. I think that's what the law was, isn't it? Yeah, it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's supposed I, to be. I mean, well, I know women were treated badly, and sometimes, you know... But now I thought it was equality on ability, and it, we it seem to be We seem to be, rather than going for equality, we're sort of dividing people up um, into separate groups, and I find that worrying. Uh, very, very worried. But, I mean, Brexit, Geoffrey, I was, as you know, I was very I much... was for Brexit, yep. I was, I was for, you know, for the early 1990s, I was advocating we should leave always. the European Union. And, and, and that opinion, you know, I mean, yeah. we were called all the names yes, under the I'm sun. Sure. But you were a passionate Brexiteer, weren't you? I was, because I believe that uh, we shouldn't be allowing Germany and France to run our, our destiny. Hell, we went through two world wars and we got over it. We actually saved Europe. And yep. we're strong people. The British people are strong. They get over it. Like Brexit now, like COVID, we'll get through it because we're strong people. We've had all sorts of incidents through our history. We've had Napoleon tramping through Europe. We've had the Armada. We've had all sorts. <laughs> you know, we fought France, didn't we? Agincourt, we beat them there with the longbow men. I mean, all the time, we and, survive. We're strong. And they don't play cricket. No. Well, we I, do. I, they do a bit. But... We... Listen, we should make our own destiny, decide our own way. I mean, we, we live for most of uh, you know, our history. Uh, we weren't attached to Europe. We went in for economic reasons. We didn't go in for them to tell us what to do in everything else. Just trade we went in for it. And then it sort of expanded, didn't it? Bit of mission creep going on. Yeah, yeah mission no, creep. There was. It just went on and on and yeah. we couldn't do anything about it. We don't want that. Yeah. At least if our politicians, our prime minister, our chancellor, whatever it is, if they don't do a good job, we do have the right to vote them out. And that has happened yep. more than once. It comes round maybe every four years or five years, but it does come round. You know, and you can only get away with it so long when people say, no, I don't like him. He don't tell me the truth. 
and they put their cross in another box. You can't do that with Europe. They just decide, no, well, I, I don't want that. No, no, you're passionate about it. And, and because of your own... And, and, you know, controversy, Jeffrey, has never been too far away Look, from you. Look, if you're frank, forthright, opinionated, yep. you'll find it's an uphill struggle. Margaret Thatcher said that. If I believe passionately in something, I'll always get opposition. Mm. She did, yet she was brilliant for this country. I mean, some Labour people were still spitting blood and fire oh, against they, it. Well, well, I mean, but you, they're not I mean, being you rational. Came, you, came from a, you came from a pit village. Where... I came from a Labour community. Yes. My father was a coal miner, and I think Hemsworth had the biggest majority. 39,000 people voted at one stage, and 37 <laughs> voted red. Yes. If they put a donkey up with a red ribbon on, they'd have voted for well, it. Well, they probably did. But, <laughs> but fortunately... I went to travel the world playing cricket, I met other people, and I could think for myself. I don't want that, I don't want anybody to vote. Nobody should vote blindly for conservatism or Labour. You, don't vote, shouldn't, you shouldn't vote blindly for anything, you should think. You know, God gave us a brain to think, we've had an education, think about who's going to do good for the country. Well, in the end, it was another Conservative woman who was a bit of a fan of yours. Yes. Theresa May. I think she's a nice lady. Big fan of yours. Didn't have a great time as Prime Minister. The but reason was job. she tried to please everybody. Yeah. Was that president in America said so you can't please everybody all yeah. of the time? Yeah. And when she got in, she's so nice a person. She tried to please the Brexiteers because they voted in majority. She had to. But she's tried to please them who wanted to remain in Europe. And you just can't, can you? You can't no. please everybody. No. But she pleased you. Because, well, because after, and there'd been the, you know, you'd had your problems with the French courts and, and, oh. and, and that assault case, and you'd been through all that difficulty. Yeah. But Theresa May decided it was going to be Sir Geoffrey Boycott. How did that feel? Well, it was nice. No, look, for nice I'd have had it before the court case, with the French court case and what she yeah. did to me. But you can't rewrite history. No. Nope. Every time I've had a setback or a knockdown, and people get that, I've had a lot. You've got to pick yourself up. You've got to be strong. I am strong mentally. My life would have been easier if I had done wrong and I said, oh, I'm sorry, apologised, and did a mea culpa and cry like Tiger Woods. <laughs> and everybody had sympathy for me. And it'd been great, wouldn't it? He's redeemed. Yeah. I'm not going to be redeemed because I know I didn't do anything wrong. It's as simple as that. Not because I'm too proud to apologise. I'll apologise for many things I've done in my life, but not that, because I didn't do it. It's simple as that. Not everybody has had a fair deal by the law. The law's not perfect. It's the best we have. Probably as good as it is in the world, but yeah. French law isn't like that. You couldn't... Uh, there's no adversarialness in my case there. They could say what they want. I have to say my about it. We couldn't challenge anything they said. It's... I mean... Our legal system is infinitely better. It's miles better. Than... But I didn't get that legal system. Mm. And unfortunately, I'm stuck with it. But my conscience is clear. And that's why I've been able to pick myself up yep. and carry on. Well, as I say, you finally got the recognition that so many people thought you deserved. In some ways, though, Geoffrey, it might have been quite fun. I mean, Ian Botham, of course, has finished up in the House of Lords. And he's, Good, I'm pleased for him. And he's campaigning on countryside issues. He's been and... the best England cricketer I've ever played with, by far. Yeah, Wonderful. Fantastic. I mean, absolutely. I, I, I wrote to him when he got his lordship. Yes. Period. I sent him a card. I said, yeah. been a delight to play with him. He was a brilliant cricketer. Yeah. His bowling was fantastic. And it allowed 
that specialness in his bowling and all the wickets that allowed him to have the freedom to your, play. Your career's overlapped by a couple of years. Yes, I was at the end. He started his test match career, his first test at Nottingham, when I came back at 36. He was 21. And I told him... Was, Is that the day you ran out Derek Randall? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Sorry to remind you of that. No, it's but... all right. <laughs> if he'd have run a bit quicker, he'd have got in. You, you had some bad press the next day over that one, I remember. Hey, listen, <laughs> we were 80 for five, though, losing the test, and I got 100, and I... Alan not got 100, <laughs> and we won the test. You, you know, there's a plus no, and a I minus. Know. I know. No, I know. it was. A, look, it was. No, both of them fantastic. He was great. Jeffrey, um, you've turned 80. Yeah. Listen, when I got to 80 not out batty, and getting 100 was pretty set. I'm not sure I'll make 100 <laughs> that. That's a lot more difficult, let me tell you. Well, Jeffrey, all I can say is for those of us that, for those of us like me that have loved cricket all our life, you've been one of those constants, really. You know, I've known about Jeffrey Boycott since I was down there somewhere, and we've been I'm lucky to meet several times over the years, but thank you for coming on GB News. Pleasure. And thank you for chatting with us. Lovely. That was the one and only Sir Geoffrey Boycott. OK, well, as ever, we're coming towards the end of the show. And as you know, uh, it is the barrage, the farage moment uh, where you send in questions to me um, and I do my very, very best to try and answer them. Now, I don't always find it easy, but we'll have a go. So, John on email asks me, which country do you think will leave the EU next? I think for the countries that are in the Euro, it's more difficult. Uh, not impossible, but more difficult. So I think Denmark is the most likely one. Uh, they were reluctant to join. They didn't join until we did in 1973. Uh, there's no reason for the Danes to stay part of the EU. At some point, though, the Italians will rebel uh, and they'll leave and they'll leave the euro and the whole thing will melt down. It can't survive. It's not right. It shouldn't survive. We want a Europe of democratic nation states. We want to be friendly with each other, trade with each other, not be run by, as I see them, the Muppets in Brussels. Andrew on email asked me, did you ever have a pint or even a, <laughs> even a quick 568 million with Mr Juncker? I like Jean-Claude Juncker. Tell you what about Juncker, whatever his faults, I actually got on with him very, very well, and it proves something. It proves you can disagree with people, but in a civilised society, you can respect their right to have an opinion, you can get on with them on a reasonable basis. And what I hate is cancel culture, this new left-wing idea, that because I disagree with your view, I'm going to try and shut you down and stop you from saying anything. And that, I find absolutely repulsive. And Juncker and I, actually, despite all the toing and froing, despite all the things he said about me and I said about him, despite all of that, we got on pretty well. John on email asked, this, this will be the last one, if the Conservatives continue to morph into the new Green Party, would you consider coming back into the political fray? Look, we all care about the environment, but I tell you what, if we're going to finish up, if we're going to finish up taxing everybody about 10,000 quid for a new boiler in their kitchens, it'll be a disaster for the Conservatives. We are out of time.